name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, uh, it's good to see you again um, here at Hope City Church. And today we are continuing our study on the Gospel of Mark. So if you want to open up your Bibles, I assume you've got Bibles with you, whether they are on your phone or whether uh, you've brought one with you. I think as well the Methodist Church have Bibles, so even if you've not brought your own, there should be a Bible on a seat near you. So grab hold of a Bible and turn with me please to Mark's Gospel and chapter 5. Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. I have quite a a large passage today to to get through. We're doing from verse 1 all the way through to verse 20. And you'll be familiar with the story. This is a story of the the, the demonized man uh, in the region of the Gerasenes. Uh, It's a very famous story. So we're going to do the best that we can this this afternoon um, to not fall asleep uh, during, during the message I'm going to try my best to do that, so I'm hoping that you can hold out on your end of the bargain. Um, So chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, let's begin to read those. Um, And just for fun, uh, because you're tired and I'm tired, let's stand, if we're able, for the reading of the Word of God. I saw R.C. Sproul do this, and I like it. I think it adds a little bit of elevation to the reading of Scripture. So here we go. You can stretch your legs with me. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to see Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone 
marveled. God, we thank you for your word to us as a church today. We thank you that this is the spiritual nourishment that you have given your sheep to feed upon. Nothing else, not gimmicks, not events, not fun, uh, but the word is what we feed on today. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would give us an ability to eat this word today, to gain sustenance from it, uh, to draw nutrition from the word of God. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said... Amen, amen. You may be seated. Now, it's been around a, a month, I think, since we last opened up Mark's Gospel together. We've had a few sessions in Daniel. And the last time that we studied the Gospel of Mark, Bucky, if you remember, preached a message of the account of Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. I don't know if you remember this. But to refresh your memory, Jesus had been teaching. He'd been teaching on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And after finishing this teaching, he had instructed his disciples to cross the sea. And this happened sometime, we're told, in the evening. Now, if you are familiar with the geography, uh, the region of the Galilee, you will know that the Sea of Galilee is kind of heart-shaped. It's, it, it looks like a plectrum. Um, and the, the place that Jesus crossed with the disciples was roughly uh, around the midpoint. So they would be crossing across the middle of the sea. It's big. It's about seven miles across. Um, and storms can whip up on the sea very quickly. Uh, it's just volatile weather systems. So they set out in the evening, presumably in good weather. And a storm, we're told, envelops them in the open water. And it's so great. This storm, we're told, is so scary that many of the seasoned fishermen who were Jesus' disciples were told they were frightened for their lives. The water's coming into the boat and Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the stern of the boat and they wake him in a panic. And Jesus, of course, stands up, rebukes them and says three words, peace, be still, and the storm is calmed. And we're told that a great calm descends upon the sea. The men who were in the boat with him, the disciples, rather than being joyful, grateful, thankful, amazed, the Bible tells us that they were scared. They were frightened. They say, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Isn't that interesting? Fear was the first reaction to that miracle. Now today, we're considering verses 1 through 20 of the fifth chapter. But I want to show you that this account of the deliverance of this demonized man carries in itself a very similar message to the account of Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. You see, both accounts are very similar. Both accounts feature for us a power clash, a power clash between Christ and chaos. Both accounts feature this power clash between Jesus Christ and chaos. You see, on the sea, we have external chaos. We have chaos from without. Very often in the Bible, the sea is a metaphor for chaos. We know that in the book of Revelation, it is out of the sea that the beast comes. It's out of chaos that he comes. This is an external type of chaos. The other conflict, the other power struggle, 
is between Jesus and the demoniac, this demonized man. And this is a different kind of chaos. This is an internal chaos, not an external one, but an internal chaos. Both accounts feature frightened onlookers, frightened onlookers, people who are petrified of Jesus. Now, we might think that the natural response to witnessing one of God's miracles would be joy, right? If we were to witness a miracle of God, surely the public would be amazed and there would be great joy. But actually, very often in Scripture, the reaction isn't joy, it's fear. People freak out. Who is this man? Both the disciples in the boat and the locals who witnessed the exorcism in chapter 5 are greatly afraid. We read that the Gerasenes even asked him to leave after witnessing the miracle. What I want to show you today, what I want to point out to us as a church, is that both these accounts, the calming of the storm on the sea and the, the exorcism of the demoniac, both accounts are to give us great personal encouragement that Christ calms the chaos in our lives. That's the first point. However, it's not the most important point. Very often in these passages, we want to jump straight to the personal application. And I understand that, and that's warranted. We want to say, what does this verse mean to me? But we do that at the expense of risking, missing the most important thing that these two accounts tell us, and it's not about us. Perhaps the main message, the higher and greater message than Christ calming storms and chaos in our lives is that Mark wants us to see that Christ, the God-man, the Logos, as John calls him, in the human flesh, he is the Son of the Most High God. That's what he wants us to see. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. Christ is the Logos. He's the pre-existent one, the one who breathed out stars in the beginning. He wants us to see that Christ is the one who brings order into the chaos and always has brought order in the chaos. He wants us to see Jesus as Lord over all creation, both physical as on the sea and spiritual as in the demoniac. And this as a church is what I want for us to, to grasp. When we read scripture, when we come to the Bible, the first question is not, what does this verse mean to me? But what did God mean by this verse? That's the most important question we must ask. But before we dive into uh, the theology, which is deep and rich of this passage, we first have got to touch on a little bit of apologetics. How many of you know that word, apologetics? If you were with me at Lifespring, you'll have perhaps been on one of the courses that I've done. But this is simply the study of giving a reasoned defense for the Christian faith. And it deals with, very often, uh, matters of Scripture, matters of the Bible. We've got to touch on some today because... When we're doing apologetics, what we're doing is we're giving a reasoned defense to skeptics, to people that don't believe what you believe, to people that want to say, listen, I would believe in the Bible, but I don't think it's trustworthy. I don't think it's got, I don't think it's factually accurate. In fact, I struggled because I went to a university to study 
theology. I went to university to study theology and one of the first lectures I, I went to, the professor stood up and basically tore the Bible to pieces. Not literally, but ideologically. And he, he, he put up sections of the New Testament and he said, listen, that verse there is clearly written by a different person than that verse over there. And this book that you think's written by Paul wasn't written by Paul. And just tore it to shreds. I had no comeback as an 18-year-old. And so this is why apologetics is so important for us as Christians, that we have a reasoned defense for what we believe. Because very often, that stuff, when you first hear it, is overawing, isn't it? You feel, wow, this person clearly knows more than I do. And you can very easily feel cowed, uh, like you, you don't have a response, like maybe what you believe is foolish. Uh, you've just always accepted it. You've never questioned it. But when you look more into it in the study of apologetics, you, you come out the other end. Instead of having your faith weakened, you have it strengthened. You have it strengthened. So apologetics is really important for us here at this church. So skeptics make a big deal about this passage here. And they say that there is an inaccuracy. They say that Mark actually gets something wrong. He gets the geographical location where this all happened wrong. Mark and Luke, uh, because this story is also in Matthew and Luke, they say that the exorcism took place in the country of the Gerasenes. But Matthew says it took place in the country of the Gadarenes. So which is it? Where did it happen? Some of them must have been wrong, or at least one of them must have been wrong about this. Moreover, there is a town called Gerasa, but it's 30 miles inland. So what's going on here? You know, did the pigs fly from Gerasa to the sea? Did they run 30 miles and the, the, the gospel writers chased them? And skeptics like to joke about this. So we've got to ask ourselves, is there a genuine error here in the biblical text? Now, I want to point out three things to you that would suggest that's not the case. Because firstly, all three gospel accounts say that the story occurred in the region of Gerasa or the region of Gadara. It doesn't say it took place in those cities, but in the region of those cities, which certainly it was. These cities were close to where these events happened. So there's no contradiction there. Secondly, another interesting development is that archaeologists, and we always like to mention archaeology in the Holy Land because time and time again, instead of undercutting the biblical record, archaeology supports the biblical record. Isn't that right, Garth? Time and time again. And in the 1970s, along the eastern shore of the Galilee, where there are cliffs which descend into the sea, there was a settlement which was uncovered. A small town. And this town was called Cursa, or Gersa in the local dialect, very close to Gerasene, isn't it? And it's uh, also, there are tombs found around this site, so it is quite possible that that town could be the Gerasa that is mentioned by Mark and by Luke. That's also a possibility. 
Thirdly, this location was in a region called the Decapolis at that time. And that's literally in Greek, that means 10 cities. Deca, 10, polis, cities. So these 10 cities were Greek settlements, not Jewish, but Greek settlements. So this eastern shore that Jesus and his disciples arrive at, it's not Jewish. It's Gentile, it's Greek. And in this passage, the people he's encountering are predominantly Gentiles. They weren't Greeks. And so you've got pigs being kept on the cliffs. Uh, that, that would not have happened on the other side of the Galilee where you've got the Jews because pigs were what? They, they were unclean. They weren't kosher, were they? So Jews couldn't keep them. And so we, uh, we find Jesus stepping off the boat <clears throat> into this region where it's full of Gentiles, there's pigs, uh, it's not clean. We find Jesus and his disciples stepping into this environment, this strange environment on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In true Markan style, we're told that this all happens immediately. Mark loves to use that word immediately. And a man meets him immediately from the tombs. A man who has an unclean spirit in the Greek, a pneuma akatharto. The Greek tells us also that the man falls at Jesus' feet. I'm just going to have a drink. <clears throat> Keep topped up. And the word that's used there is proskunein, which is actually the same Greek word used for worship. <clears throat> so this is interesting, isn't it? That the man was likely in quite a state. Clearly, he's been ostracized from his community. Uh, he's living in the tombs. He's living with the dead. <clears throat> and I want for you also to uh, see this from a Jewish perspective. We know that according to the law of Moses, coming into contact with something that was unclean, it made you unclean for a period of time. And this whole place that they've traveled to is full of uncleanness. It's a Gentile settlement. Uh, there are pigs nearby. Um, they're approached by a man with an unclean spirit. Uh, and he's come from the tombs. Um, the dead were considered unclean as well. So to your average Jew, uh, this place was an absolute no-go. You didn't go there. You didn't go there. But Jesus marches in. Jesus goes there. And that's the beauty of the gospel, I think, right there. That's the gospel. There's no other God in all the world who willingly steps out of glory into the gloom and into the filth of, of human sinfulness to rescue just one person. But that's exactly what Jesus does here. And I think this really does speak to those kinds of people that you'll meet that say, I, I've gone too far. I've done too much to ever become a Christian. I, I can never come to Christ. I've, I've sinned too much. My life is full of too much darkness and damage. But Jesus here meets a man who's gone all the way. He's gone all the way. This guy is full of demons, full of demons. He's out of his mind. He's running naked through the wilderness, cutting himself, screaming like a lunatic. If Jesus can reach this demonized man, he can reach anyone. It doesn't matter how far that person may have gone. 
Now, because this passage talks about demons, <laughs> we always get heavy subjects in this church, don't we? Um, we've got to look at the subject of demonology. So today we are going to touch on a few things about the demonic realm, <coughs> excuse me, and hopefully learn something about it, their nature, their activity. Now, why would we do this? I think it's important that our understanding of the demonic has got to be shaped by the word of God and not by something else. Not by stories, mythology, Hollywood, but by scripture. And there are a number of things that we can understand about demons, about their aims and objectives from this passage that I think are, are important. So I don't want for us to, to leave today's sermon thinking that we need to be overly focused on what the devil's up to or, or we need to go out and buy some books about demons. <laughs> I don't want us to think that, but I do want for us to be educated. I do want for us to be educated on this stuff. So we read um, that this man comes and throws himself down and he comes to Jesus. He has an unclean spirit. And we then find out when Jesus asks the demon its name that there's not just one, but there's, there's many. See, asking the demon its name, why did he do that? Well, that was a sign of authority. It was a sign of authority. When Jesus asked the demon its name, it, it's like one-upping the demon. It's like, you tell me your name. You know, and the demon responds. He says, Legion. My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, if you didn't know, a legion is a unit of soldiers. It was a name for a unit of soldiers in the Roman army, and roughly 5,600 soldiers, quite a big unit. So when this demon says, Legion, we're not talking about three or four demons. We're not talking about 10 or 20. We're talking about thousands of demons, thousands of demons this man had. And there's a number of things that we can deduce from what we read in this encounter between Jesus and Legion. And I want to run through them quickly. Firstly, we can deduce this, that it is possible for demons to possess an individual. That is possible. That's not the stuff of Hollywood. It's not the stuff of mythology that this is true. Demons can actually possess individuals and they can use that individual to communicate they can speak through an individual that's possible moreover it's possible for an individual to host multiple demons not just one but a number we know that and it's multiply attested in scripture i think this example here of, of legion is extreme I don't think there are many people walking around today who have 5,600 demons possessing them. But, but what this tells us is that it is possible for an individual to be possessed by demons. And that is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. Secondly, it is possible for that demon to communicate with others through the host. And I've heard stories from people in this church who've experienced that firsthand. A, a demon speaking to them through somebody and it makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. But it is, again, scriptural. This can happen. 
Thirdly, we can tell this about what demons are all about. A demon's objective, what they want to do, what their intention is when they possess somebody or when they are wanting to take control of something, their objective is always to bring harm. It's always to bring harm, to bring pain, either physical, emotional, spiritual, to bring damage in every possible conceivable way, whether that's mentally bringing uh, struggles in the area of mental health or physically making somebody physically uh, ill or the, the cutting of the rocks, the guy's cutting himself with rocks, again, a sign that the demons were there trying to harm his physical body. Spiritually, theologically, yes, uh, demons can sow bad theology into the minds of Christians. <laughs> and try to lead them astray, this is possible, although I don't believe it's possible for a Christian to be possessed, and I will get to that shortly. Uh, also, uh, demons can affect regions economically, we'll get to that too. But they wanna cause harm any which way that they can. Now this poor man we see has been driven mad. He's running around screaming, his behavior was violent. His appearance is frightening. He's in great distress. He's not in his right mind. He's cutting himself. And I don't think that every example of uh, self-harm is demonic. I don't think that's warranted from Scripture. But I do think that where we do see demonization, uh, we will see quite often uh, signs of self-harm. Um, in fact, I had a very alarming encounter once, me and Becca, we, we, there was an example where we, we, we met a young girl who was smashing her head against a brick wall. Uh, she was, can't have been older than 10. We tried to talk to her. She scaled a, like a, a 10 foot fence in seconds, jumped over it and then tried to cut herself. Now, thankfully we, we managed to call some help in and some carers came and managed to help her. But you can see how this poor girl was not in her right mind. That's not, that's not what nine, ten-year-olds do, is it? But you can see that when a demon comes in, the objective is to cause distress, to cause harm, um, to harm somebody mentally, um, cause them confusion, uh, fear, and uh, desperation. Now, another clue from this passage that's very interesting that demons want to cause damage is that they wanted to enter the pigs. Now, I've always thought, well, why would they want to enter the pigs? I don't understand this. And why would the pigs rush into the sea? What's the significance? Well, those 2,000 pigs would have been worth quite a lot of money. They would have probably been used to feed the Roman army, which was uh, situated in that area. They were an important part of the local economy. I don't know if that's ever occurred to you, but they were an important part of that economy. The demons knew that. And clearly, they're thinking, let's destroy these pigs. Let's have one final hurrah before, you know, Jesus deals with us. And they rush down the hill, and the pigs are drowned. So they went out with a bang. They affected the economy badly, didn't they? Now, in our culture today, more and more, even in the last 10 years, this has happened more. Um, it's become popular to dabble, to play around with the spirit realm, to think that you can communicate with spiritual forces, with demons, 
and not get harmed or think that you're somehow in control of that encounter. People kid themselves on that they're the ones playing with the spirit realm, but really it's them getting played. You know, you can't play with fire and not get burnt and you can't play around with demons and not get hurt and damaged. Fourthly, this, this name Legion, why would they choose that name Legion? What does that tell us? Well, I think it tells us something of the nature of the powers of darkness that's important. Demons are not lone rangers. They're not hired guns. They're organized. They're organized into ranks, that there's a common aim and objective, there's a structure, there's a system of reporting in a legion. Uh, They're part of a military unit which has a commander, Satan, and it has aims and objectives, which is to conquer, which is to take ground. Now, knowing this, I think it's important for us as Christians to then want to form ranks ourselves, you know, to put up defenses, walls of prayer, to have community together. How important is that, that we too are not lone rangers? If we know that our enemy is organized into ranks and has objectives and does not rest, we too, brothers and sisters, should be formed into ranks in the church. We should want to be ready to fend off enemy attack. Fifthly, this legion of demons clearly wanted territorial occupation of that region. They actually begged Jesus not to send them out of the country. Did you catch that when we read it? Don't send us out of the country. The demonic realm wants to have influence over specific geopolitical regions, cities, towns, nations even. And I think it's naive to think this isn't happening today. That there aren't demons that desire possession of this region here. That there is a spiritual warfare taking place for the United Kingdom today. And for the regions of the United Kingdom. The cities, the areas. So how do we, how do we win that war? How, how do we put our best foot forwards in that conflict so that the devil doesn't run amok and, and, and win the ground? Well, I think it's answered in the sixth point. This is the sixth thing that we can know about the demonic realm. It's that humanistic efforts to fix demonic problems do not work. Humanistic efforts to fix problems that are demonic have no effect. You can't educate your way out of spiritual warfare, right? We need spiritual solutions to spiritual problems, not natural solutions to spiritual problems. We read that the people of the region had attempted, they'd attempted to control this demonized guy by natural means. They put chains on him. They put fetters on his feet to try and control him and his behavior, to control the demons. What had happened? Well, he'd broken through them. This guy had clearly had a level of superhuman strength. Now, I've said before, I don't think that every societal ill, every sickness, every evil um, is caused by a demon. I don't think that. I think that there are natural causes for physical, mental illnesses 
that lie in the broken sinful nature of our constituent being, that, that we are sinful. And therefore, in a world of sin, we can expect sickness. We can expect these things because we are broken and sinful. It doesn't always have to be a demon lurking under every rock. However, I do believe that some of these issues are directly or indirectly caused by demonic powers and that Mark wants us to know that against those demonic powers there's actually only one name that triumphs. There's only one name that actually deals with the problem of demonization and that is the name of Jesus. We see this because the demons are petrified of him. They're petrified of him. The guy throws himself down before Christ. And it's actually the demon speaking to him, isn't it? It's not the man. It's the demons. The demon throws itself down before him. They beg Jesus not to torment them. Uh, they know clearly that he will torment them one day. They call him the son of the most high God. They beg him not to send them out of the country. And they ask permission, don't they, from him to enter the herd of pigs. They know that they can't just do that. <coughs> Keep hydrated. Now, what does this tell us? It tells us that the dialogue between Jesus and Legion is not between equals. It's not a conversation between equals. It's not a fair fight. It's complete submission, complete domination by Jesus. And there's only one name that causes every demon to tremble, and that's Jesus's. And we remember as Christians who it is that dwells within us. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Isn't that encouraging? And that's why I believe that as Christians, we, we don't need to fear the demonic realm because of what has happened in us, because Christ lives inside his children. We have no need to fear the demonic realm. And also, that's why I believe it's impossible for a Christian, a true born-again Christian, to be possessed. How could a demon, or even a legion of demons, overpower Christ? It's impossible. It can't happen. Christ is the ultimate strongman who binds the devil. And so we needn't fear demon possession ourselves. I do believe that it's possible for a Christian to come under spiritual attack, to come under demonic oppression for a time, uh, but never mastered, never possessed, um, because as we know, he who lives in us is greater than he who is in the world. Wherever the kingdom of Christ extends, the kingdom of darkness must fall. It's like switching on a light in a dark room. I do want to make another point here as well, that when we talk about the kingdom of God advancing, because that's what we see in this parable, we see Jesus' kingdom advancing, we see the kingdom of darkness falling. And there are some today who would teach that wherever the kingdom of God advances, wherever we see revival, that we will, of needs must, we will see immediate financial prosperity, that somehow 
financial flourishing is a necessity is, is of necessity part of revival and though I think there's some truth to that I think that prosperity does come with the kingdom um, I think there's a part of that that's true I do find it kind of funny in this passage that Jesus arrives in this region of the Gadarenes he frees just one soul and he destroys a lucrative business in the process right I mean I know Jesus doesn't actually do the destroying it's the demons that take the pigs into the sea but Jesus permitted them to go there didn't he and I think that's interesting I, I don't think Jesus is intended to crash this guy's business whoever it is but what it tells me is it shows me where Jesus's priorities lie it shows me where Jesus's priorities lie Jesus cares so much about this one man that he's prepared for anything else he'll do anything else to get this one man free and I think that's so key in our understanding of revival we should never say that God does not prosper a place financially because he does in Geneva uh, the reformers John Calvin John Knox and many others before Calvin went to Geneva and became pastor it was a place of vice people were literally running naked in the streets it was chaos he goes there and begins to preach every day from the word of God in that church and the church sorry the city completely was transformed it became prosperous and now if you go to Geneva it's like the cleanest place on earth it's famous for watchmaking and things like that so absolutely you know God can prosper a city can change it radically through the preaching of the gospel but I don't think that we should always just look for financial prosperity and where we see it therefore there's revival does that make sense Jesus cares more about one soul than he does about businesses right his his aim and objective is his children I think also what, what we can learn as I wrap up today is all it took was one encounter with Jesus for this man's life to be completely transformed completely changed no matter how broken dark or sinful or demonic a person might be they're only one encounter with Jesus away from complete transformation no one's too far gone and when this man is delivered we we read that he wants to travel with him he wants to go with Jesus doesn't he and instead of Jesus saying as he has done before don't don't tell anybody don't don't speak about this he actually releases him he sends him back to his people to share the good news of all that the, that the Lord has done for him and of how God's had mercy on him and we're told that the man does that he goes into the Decapolis and that the people were amazed at what he had to say so this Gentile this demoniac he actually becomes the first man appointed by Christ as a missionary, as an evangelist. This Gentile guy who'd been filled with demons, he becomes the first evangelist that Jesus appoints. Isn't that incredible? He's restored to his people, to his family, to his friends. And I think for us, what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that God always uses the foolish to shame the wise. He uses the weak things, the small things, the broken things to glorify himself in the earth. And that's good news for me because I'm broken, insignificant, poor and weak. And so hallelujah for that. Praise God 
that he does that. It also tells us that his work of salvation is holistic. It's holistic. It, it doesn't just finish at the forgiveness of sins. He delivers from sins, but he delivers us into purpose. He delivers us into restoration. He delivers us into hope. I think that's really key for us today, that there's, a, there's so much more to being born again and to being a Christian than just sins being forgiven, though that is the key thing. So what's the big picture? What are we to learn from this? Mike, can I invite you up? That's right, mate. Um, I think the things we can learn from this passage today, church, are these. Demons are real. Demons are real, okay? They're active in the world today. And they come to cause damage. They come to do harm. But they are no match for Christ. They are no match for the Lord who lives in you. They can't stand toe-to-toe with the Holy Spirit. I believe that today even there is conflict, just the same as there is in the Gospels, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And that exorcism, in a sense, the casting out of demons, is part of the world today, is part of the Christian life today as it was those years ago. But I... I think it's key that we remember that that happens through Christ. He is the strong man. Not you, not I. (laughs) He is the strong man who binds the devil. Jesus calms the storm on Galilee with three words. He He dealt with the legion without so much as a struggle. I think that also it's important for us to see that Jesus is willing to step into the darkest most unclean and inhospitable place to rescue just one of his sheep. One soul is worth dying for. And I'm sure all of you have got testimonies of the dark places that he rescued you from. And if you're listening today, maybe through live stream, you too, living in darkness, living in that place of uncleanness, Christ can step into that world too and rescue you. Finally, These two stories, the demoniac and the calming of the sea, these stories are about Jesus. They're about Christ. They're about him bringing order into chaos. The tempest on the seas, he turns into a great calm. The violent demoniac has one encounter and he's found sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. I think it's interesting that that's what we see also in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, right at the start of the Bible, we have God creating the earth and we're told that it's without form and void. It's, it's tohu vabohu in the uh, Hebrew. And that's a picture of chaos. I don't think the English language quite conveys how um, chaotic those words are. They, it, it's formless. It's a formless wasteland at the beginning. And then God speaks his word and there's order. Immediately there's order, there's function, there's beauty. And Jesus is showing us through this deliverance of this man that that is his nature. He is the logos, he's the order. He's the one who brings order into chaos. Sorry, chaos into order, let's not get that wrong. And he's bringing order to chaos since the beginning of time. And that's what he's doing every time he saves a soul. He brings order where there was chaos. He is God. He is the Lord. 
Wherever he touches your life today, he brings order. He brings calm. So I want for us to stand for a moment because I recognize for a lot of us, there might be areas in our lives where there is a stormy sea, where there is chaos, uh, where there is fear, there is distress. And I want to just pray for a moment as we finish in worship that the Holy Spirit might come and, and that you might experience, because Christianity is an experiential faith, isn't it? That we might experience supernaturally now the great calm that Jesus brings. So Lord, as we stand in your presence today, we offer up our hearts to you. And Lord, we recognize that there are places in our lives still where there are tempests, where there is chaos, or where it feels like there's chaos, either from without, in the circumstances of life, or from within. Perhaps there's anxiety, there's uh, fear, there's depression. And Lord, we recognize that you don't change. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you're still bringing order where there's chaos. So I pray in the name of Jesus right now, Holy Spirit, that you would touch every single person in this room right now, and that there would be a great calm that comes upon our hearts today that chaos would be stilled that order and function and purpose and hope would flood in to every heart right now in jesus name amen amen praise god if you'd like any prayer or ministry afterwards if you want to talk i'm going to be here